In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, first off, I want to say thank you to, uh, to Father Wes uh, for inviting me, and I look forward to meeting you all. Uh, and if you have any complaints, give them to him, not to me. I don't want to hear them. That's easy. <laughs> so today is Passion Sunday. It's an interesting and a unique moment in the liturgical life of the church. The name Passion Sunday may seem odd because if you noticed, uh, the lectionary readings for today aren't the Passion narratives. Rather, we hear those next week on Palm Sunday chanted by three Passion deacons. The deacons each take a role. One is narrator, one is Christ, and one is the crowd. So on Palm Sunday, we hear the entire Passion narrative from Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem to his conviction, scourging, suffering, and death. Yet today is Passion Sunday. Today we don't read about Christ being scourged, beaten, or falsely convicted. We read in the epistle about his priesthood. And we read in the gospel about a tense interaction between Christ, a crowd of people, and Pharisees. So in a sense, what gives? At the end of today's gospel reading, we see the beginning of our Lord's arduous journey toward the cross. He makes it clear that he is the son of the living God, the one whom the Father sent to effect salvation, the one who is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, the divine logos, the I am, who is greater than Abraham or any prophet. And at this acclamation of his divinity, This is what spurs the Pharisees to pick up stones to slay him. This direct statement that Christ is the divine son kindles in them the fires of rage. It inflames the sinful passions of those gathered around so that our Lord might undergo his sinless passion, his suffering on our behalf. So we call it Passion Sunday because we begin the march towards the passion. As you may know, on Passion Sunday, we veil crucifixes and images of our Lord and the saints. We cover those sacred images not because we don't want to be reminded of them, not because they're bad or unimportant, but because the church as a whole, starting now, puts on the widow's veil. We put on mourning clothes to prepare for the intense march towards Calvary. Today marks the beginning of our ascent with Christ to the Mount of Crucifixion. Liturgically, we also remove the glory be from the introit and from the daily offices. The antiphons begin to reflect our pilgrimage towards Holy Week and the three most important days of the year, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday. Passion Sunday marks a liturgical turning point for us, a point in which the church narrows her focus even more. You see, the liturgy is never static. It is uniform and consistent, but it isn't static. It shifts and changes throughout the year to teach us and to prepare us for what's coming next. In a very real sense, the liturgy, with all its introits, colics, epistles, graduals, tracts, gospels, offertory verses, secret prayers, communion verses, I'm running out of breath, Post-communion colics, all of it 
teaches us the faith once delivered to the saints. We are formed into Christians by our participation in the life of the church. This liturgical principle isn't new. It's not an innovation. Rather, it's part of the deposit of faith. It doesn't go back centuries. It goes back millennia. So this brings us to an important question. How does all this liturgical stuff impact how we think and respond to Passion Sunday? How does it help us understand what's going on? The answer to that question is found in today's propers, the readings, the epistle and gospel. As we saw in the gospel reading, Christ makes it crystal clear that he is the divine son, the one sent by the father, the one who came to die and rise again for our salvation. This reality is explained for us in great detail in our epistle. We're told, and I'll quote here from the RSV for the sake of clarity, because as we all know, St. Paul can be difficult to understand at the best of times. Throw on some Elizabethan English and it might be impossible. He says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The epistle to the Hebrews is one long explanation of priesthood, one long sermon on who Christ is as our great high priest. The author of Hebrews is reminding his listeners, who would have been intimately familiar with this story, of the sealing of the covenant on Mount Sinai. Moses, followed by the leaders of the people of Israel, is invited by God to God's dwelling place, to his tabernacle. And they are told what is expected of them. They're instructed to set up an altar to offer sacrifices and to engage in that ancient liturgy. And then, having been physically covered in the blood of those sacrifices, they sit down and share a meal with God himself. I mean, they actually sit down and share a meal with God himself. This event, formative to the Jewish identity, is a foreshadowing of what is to come. Christ, in his earthly ministry, ascends to the Mount of Beatitudes and teaches the law. He proclaims the features of the new covenant. He also ascends to the Mount of Transfiguration and reveals his glory to the apostles that are gathered. And what is the one thing that they do after seeing him in his glory? They say, build a tent, build an altar. We have to stay here forever. But Christ doesn't let them. He teaches and preaches the whole time in his earthly ministry about what salvation means, how we participate in it, who we are without him and who we are in him. Then, as our gospel reminds us, he, knowing full well what it would entail, journeyed back to Jerusalem to endure the greatest suffering ever known. He carried in his perfect and beautiful soul the weight of every sin, past, present, and future. He shed his blood to cover us, fulfilling that image on Sinai. And after all that, after the pain, torture, and suffering, 
He looks into every person's soul and invites them into the divine life. He himself is the very embodiment of the covenant. He is the one who seals us with his own blood. And flowing out of that, he invites us to his altar. He invites us to share a meal which isn't symbolic of the glories to come. It is real and actual. He offers us his very body, blood, soul, and divinity. His sacrifice, eternally offered for the whole world in the heavenly tabernacle, is actually given to us that we might be one with him. He dies our death. He tramples down death by death that we might be brought into everlasting life, that we might share in his resurrection. And as Christians, as Christians who live in the ancient rhythm of the liturgy, we can't skip, simply skip to the part which makes us comfortable. We can't gloss over the fact that Christ, in fulfilling every type and shadow, sanctifies us with his spilt blood. He sheds that precious blood for us and invites us to join in that sacrifice. So today, Passion Sunday, we look to the liturgy to prepare us for what is to come. We look to the liturgy to teach us how to pray, how to act, how to live. We, in this season of struggle and penitence that we know is Lent, should think about the great depths of God's love, that he would shed his precious blood for us. And just like Good Friday, we will look on this Sunday, on Passion Sunday, and confuse the world. We will call what is, from the outside, horrible and painful, good. We will rejoice. We won't speak of the bitter passion, but of the beata passio, the blessed and joyous passion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May the glorious passion of our Lord Jesus Christ bring us to the joys of paradise. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.